You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back. I'm Zoe, a professional game developer, and I'm here as always with Mac, my co-host and PhD candidate at Purdue University, and we are medievalists who teach you how to adapt medieval stories into TTRPGs. And today we are following on to a topic that we covered last time with Dr. Caldellis. Dr. K, graciously bestowed his presence upon us and was talking about Procopius and the rather, what is it, levacious? What's, what are the words? Lascivious? Lascivious. I can't f***ing talk today, apparently. That's the theme. I am a writer who can't spell. Fun fact, I failed every spelling test that I ever took in grade school, so thank God for spell check. You know, I really think you should get tested for dyslexia. That's probably fair. I don't mix my words up. I just struggle with pronunciation and spelling. But that's fair. It might be. Anyway, after that diagnosis, let's get into what we're actually talking about today. But first, as always, if you want to come laugh at my misspellings and see them in real time, check out our Discord. Tie that in there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, check out our Discord. We've got a wonderful community. So whether you are into the academic side and you want to source some papers, you're looking for papers on your specific medieval topic, well, we have a resource for that. Or if you like the tabletop stuff, or if you like both, or if you just like, I don't know, dank internet memes, kill me now, check those out on our Discord. (laughs) I'm (laughs) really off. I'm like top notch today. Anyway. (laughs) I swear when you said dank, you managed to sound like 10 years older than you were. <laughs> like, you're in your 20s, that I mean, should be yeah. fine, but you suddenly <laughs> sounded like you were, like, an out-of-touch, like, See, boomer. it's because I was a teacher, and no matter what, it doesn't matter if you've, like, just graduated and you're, like, a first-year teacher, or if you've been a teacher for 50 years, the kids are gonna make fun of you for not knowing what the terms are. hmm that's probably true. Anyway, our Discord, we have our other social media... We have our Instagram. We have our Facebook. If you're one of the boomers, I guess. We also have a Tumblr. So check that out. It's actually popping. And I wanted to highlight, Mac, what you're doing with your Scorpion Sundays. Oh, yeah. Uh, Should I describe what I'm doing? Yes. Tell the listeners what Scorpion Sundays are all about. All right. So (laughs) putting you on the spot. A couple weeks ago... I made a fairly long post about medieval scorpions and the fact that many of them are drawn incorrectly, as we kind of touched on with our um, Inside My Favorite Manuscript guest episode. Yep. And apparently, my pictures of inaccurate medieval scorpions struck a chord with Tumblr, so people started sending me scorpions... Or pictures of manuscript (laughs) illustrations of scorpions. Please don't send us scorpions. And so I've started rating them. They're good scorpions. They're weird. They're weird scorpions. We got scorpions with like humanoid heads. We've got like weird little, they look like beetles, beetle scorpions with lips. There's a bunch of weird scorpions. So if you're into weird medieval marginalia, check that out. Those are on our Tumblr. 
Yep, that's happening. Yeah. So anyway, point is, we've got our social media. Clearly, we're doing something correctly, because those are a hit. But anyway, come check us out. Come get in touch with us. Of course, we also have the website. There are plenty of ways to get in touch with us. And we love when you send us wonderful feedback about what we're doing. So anyway, all that aside, Procopius. Yes, we kind of covered who he is and what his deal is in part zero, as I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call it. Uh, if you want to look him up, the spelling that we're using in our episode naming is the one that Dr. Caldellis uses, which I assume is the Greek version, because it's got a K instead of a C and an O instead of a U, and that feels like the kind of Greco-Roman thing when yep. divide. Yep. But the print copy I have from the Loeb Classical Library uses what I believe is the Latin version which uh, is P-R-O-C-O-P-I-U-S, in case anyone wants to Google him. And we will do our best to have a free version available in the show notes, so that will be there. Yes, I actually, I looked into this. As far as I can tell, the Loeb Classical Library version is public domain. There you go. Not because it's from long enough ago that it automatically is public domain, but because it was done during that time period in American copyright law, where if you didn't actively maintain your copyright, you could lose it. Yep, it fell out. Yeah. Anyway, listeners may remember that a couple years ago, there was a poll that we put on our our Twitter and Facebook, back when Twitter was Twitter, and we still used Facebook, which we've kind of fallen off of. Probably gonna put those polls on Discord in the future. But anyway, we did a poll asking which of two different texts we should do an extended series on. And I think a total of 12 people voted because we are not a large podcast and we were even smaller back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it had the weird split that we had on Facebook, six oh, votes for right. Perlis Vals, and on Twitter, yeah. six votes for Procopius. So here we are three years later. <laughs> right. <laughs> I split the tie by saying, like, okay, well, we've just visited the Byzantines, because we'd just done Luprand of Cremona. Yep, so that's right. So we'll do Perlis Vows for now, and then the next time it comes around, I'll do Procopius. Everyone's happy. Of course, then Perlis Vows took, like, a year, and then it was Zoe's turn, and we, we did Ale Saga, and that took, like, a year, but we're finally back. We're here. We will follow through, listeners. Your feedback is just that important to us, that if it takes us three years... You know, gosh dang it, we'll do it. Yeah, so here is Procopius. You already know who he is and what his deal is if you listened to part zero. If you didn't, I don't know, man, go back and listen to it. It's all right there. I mean, the TLDR is also just that he was kind of like Tacitus in that he was a historian, quotes implied, during the Byzantine era rather than the roman era for tacitus i say era as though that narrows it down but anyway court well sort of court historian wrote all of these things down and wrote a rather scandalous secret history which we will be digging into yes he has seven volumes in the Loeb classical library the secret history or the anecdota depending on what you want to call it is volume six and just volume six his other works cover multiple volumes Except for whatever Volume 7 is, I assume. Books 1 through 5 are The Wars. Book 6 is The Secret History. Book 7 is The Buildings. Uh-oh.
court historian, and what we're reading is the stuff that he did not put in his official histories. So, we are going to learn about the reign of Justinian the Great through the lens of someone who does not like him. I'm so excited. These are my favorite kind of texts to read. Like, on the one hand, you've got, like, this beautiful, like, Arthuriana, and it's these weird chivalric tales. And on the other hand, you have the, like, shitlist gossip rags of the medieval world. And they're my favorite. Like, Jeffrey of Monmouth, we've got to give him his due diligence. He's like, I'm going to write a history of the kings of Britain. I'm like, great, buddy. And then he just immediately went all the way back to Troy because that's what you have to do when you're writing a history of your nation is everything has to go back to Troy. Right. But then there's these, in Joffrey, you have to kind of pick through the lines and read between the lines to understand the politics of what's going on because he's making it look very pretty for you. Versus something like this, which is a little bit more straightforward and fun to read. Oh, also, I want to say, even though this is public domain, and I'm going to be reading direct quotations instead of my own paraphrasing, I'm not reading the whole thing through. I'm reading selections and skipping about. And for the first couple episodes, I'm going to be reading pretty much straight because he's like introducing the people we need to know about. But a lot of the later sections... I just kind of skip over because one of the things he likes to complain about oh, no. is how much Justinian and his court were involved in graft and corruption. Yes. He presents this as very yeah. shocking. Oh, no. Our but government? Like, to, exactly. To a modern reader, we're just like, yeah, they're political leaders. That's what they do. That's what they do. Yeah. Like... Yeah, I'm, I bet he is skimming off the top. He's an emperor. The whole point of an empire is to concentrate power and resources in the hands of a few. He's one of those few. Yes, of course he's stealing from the treasury. That's what he's there for. Yep. So less shocking to us. Yeah. I feel like maybe it's just not written down as much and people in the ancient and medieval periods thought the same way as we do. And it's just that the surviving texts prefer to present kings and emperors and whatnot as being these, like, semi-divine beings. But to us, we're like, yeah, they're people, and they're people who wanted to get into power, and therefore, they're probably assholes. Yeah. So, none of the, like, grafty stuff I'm really including. You can read our, you know, our modern-day pieces for that if you're interested. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so, I'm going to begin... And this is, this is how he introduces it. I'm starting right at the beginning. All that has befallen the Roman nation in its wars up to the present day has been narrated by me, as far as it proved possible, on the plan of arranging all the accounts of its activities in accordance with their proper time and place. Henceforth, however, this plan of composition will be followed by me no longer, for here shall be set down everything that came to pass in every part of the Roman Empire. All of it. Yes. He was everywhere all at once. <laughs> yes. He has agents in every city across the empire. No one is safe from him. It's Jason Bourne. <laughs> like, what is this? Okay. All right. The reason for this, I, th- I think he just means that, like, I left stuff out earlier and now right. I won't. Right. The reason for this is that it was not possible, as long as the actors were still alive, for these things to be recorded in the way they should have been. I forgot about that. For neither was it possible to elude the vigilance of multitudes of spies, nor, if detected, to escape a most cruel death. 
Indeed, I was unable to feel confidence even in the most intimate of my kinsmen. Nay, more. In the case of many of the events described in the previous narrative, I was compelled to conceal the causes which led up to them. Reminder, uh, his previous narrative is his account of the Persian War, the Vandalic War, the Gothic War, and, and just general, like... This is what's going on, yeah. This man is a true bard. It's a good intro. Like, the way he gets into this, he's like, I was hunted down, I could trust no one, but here I bring you the truth. It's like a law drama. Yeah. It will therefore be necessary for me in this book to disclose not only those things which have hitherto remained undivulged, but also the causes of those occurrences which have already been described. As I turn, however, to a new endeavor which is fraught with difficulty and is in fact extraordinarily hard to cope with. <laughs> I know, I like that phrase too. <laughs> He's having a hard time coping with it. I love it. I love it. Being concerned as it is with the lives lived by Justinian and Theodora, that would be Justinian's wife. Yep. So the emperor and his wife, now that they're dead. Yeah. I find myself stammering and shrinking as far from it as possible, as I weigh the chances that such things are now to be written by me as will seem neither credible nor probable to men of a later generation. I don't know about that. <laughs> well, to be fair, he does, like, go off on some points where I'm like, <laughs> I don't think that happened, my man. See, but I like the foresight that he had in writing that down. He's like, y'all in the future aren't going to believe me, and I know. But like, how many times have you been in that situation where you like, you look back at 2020, and you're like, if you told this to anybody, like if you told somebody in 2016 what was going to happen, or if you told somebody like in the future future about what happened in 2020, they wouldn't believe you either. Like, if you said to somebody, like, yeah, the Catholic priests were using water guns, guns filled with water to shoot the babies to baptize them from six feet away, like, I'd be like, that's, what the f***, man, you're making that up. I forgot that happened. You're making that up. Like, a water gun? Mm -hmm. What the f*** is a water gun, right? Like, in the future, you know? It's like, I used a water arrow to baptize this baby because there was a plague. I'd be like, no, that's bullshit, man. So I, like I don't know. This is the aspect of the pandemic that stuck with you. There, I mean, there's multiple things, but that's the one where I'm like, the Catholic Church really popped off on that one. It's definitely an interesting approach. Yeah, like, it makes total sense, but the pictures are really funny because you get these, like, dressed up dudes. With these bright neon water guns. And they're they're not like the little squirty guns that are really small. They're like the pistol-powered battery pack. Like, really? like the yeah. Super soakers? <laughs> yeah, the super soakers. I'm like, what, <laughs> what do you need that for? I'm, I'm going to look up these pictures later. Because I feel like this is only going to be more entertaining with the fact that they're pointing it at it's, a baby. I know, it's amazing. But anyway, anyway. Yeah. I, I kind of understand where he's coming from here. <laughs> Right, especially since he wrote the official history, so yeah. he knows, like, what people are going to be, yeah. like, told. So he's, yeah, he knows the deal. As will seem neither credible nor probable to men of a later generation, and especially when the mighty stream of time renders the story somewhat ancient, I fear lest I shall earn the reputation of being even a narrator of myths, and shall be ranked among the tragic poets. Aww. But I shall not flinch from the immensity of my task, 
basing my confidence on the fact that my account will not be without the support of witnesses. I don't know how he thinks that's going to work. Well, I guess he's going to, does he list them off, his witnesses, or does he just, like, have confidence in knowing that there were other people who could back this up? Uh, ooh, hold on, there's a footnote. Because one thing that I want to, like, bring up here that's very interesting is that from a medieval perspective, he knows what he's doing. He he knows, like, what the myths and the poets are. Like Homer, right? And so whatever kernel of truth there was with the Trojan War and Homer that has fallen into myth now, he's worried about that same thing. And he's like, no, but I'm still going to write this down anyway. And whether or not he wants to be remembered as one of these grand poets or not, or rather as a historian, like, mm, I don't know, like you could go either way. But he's framing this tradition in such a way that he knows he's, it's very cognizant in the way that he's framing this. And I also want to point out that this is very akin to, I believe, what John and Luke do, but that's in the Gospels as well. And then also in the Old Testament, there is a matter of saying like, hey, what I'm about to tell you is going to sound crazy. Here's how I'm going to prove to you that it's true. And I think it was John? I can't remember which one of the four it was, but there is a genealogy that goes through each and every one of King David's lineage to get to Jesus, to prove that he is a descendant of the king as was prophesied. Da, 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 da. So it's the same thing in this lineage. I really feel like that's the part that needs the least proof. I mean, yeah. I would also agree, but he's, for for a Hebrew audience, that's what he's trying to do. Like, personally, I'd want proof that he did miracles. Like, I, I feel like that's that's the claim that needs backup. Right, rather than his genealogy. Like, oh, okay, cool. Like, you fulfilled the prophecy. You know, how many sons of sons of King David are there? There's probably yeah. a lot. But anyway, point is here, Procopius is highly aware of what he is doing both in a mythological and in a historical context. Yeah. Okay, and according to the introduction, there are actually other contemporary writers or writers from not long afterwards whose accounts, while they don't go into as much detail, are consistent with Procopius's. That's pretty cool. I mean, mostly in just that they agree that the people he doesn't like were, in fact, terrible. Fair. I mean, it was a very long time ago. But anyway, the support of witnesses. For the men of the present day, being witnesses possessing full knowledge of the events in question will be competent guarantors to pass on to future ages their belief in my good faith in dealing with the facts. I forgot how long-winded this was. All right. <laughs> and yet there was still another consideration which very often when I was eager to undertake my narrative held me back for a very long time. For I conceive the opinion that for men of future generations, such a record as this would be inexpedient, since it will be most advantageous that the blackest deeds shall, if possible, be unknown to later times, rather than that, coming to the ears of sovereigns, they should be imitated by them. So he's taking the um, abstinence-only approach to history here. Wait, break that down for me. He thinks that maybe you shouldn't talk about the bad things that kings do because then other kings will learn that you can do those things. Oh, so if we don't talk about sex, then we won't do the sex. Okay, cool. Okay, that took me a minute to catch that metaphor. I see. Yes, makes sense now. But obviously this is not how he decided to go since he did this, this book does exist. So let's carry on. Well, see, that's his little disclaimer. 
Yeah. I did think about this, yeah. but I decided against it. Anything that a king reads here in and, and then does is not my fault, because that wasn't my intention. Like, yeah. Okay, cool. Death of the author, bro, but whatever. Don't try this at home. Yeah. For in the case of the majority of men in power, their very inexperience always causes the imitation of the base actions of their predecessors to be easy, and they ever turn with greater ease and facility to the faults committed by the rulers of an earlier time. But afterwards, I was brought to write my history of these events by the thought that it will assuredly be clear to those who hereafter shall hold sovereign power that, in the first place, Punishment will in all probability overtake them likewise for their misdeeds, just as befell these persons. And in the second place, that their own actions and characters will likewise be on record for all future time, so that consequently they will perhaps be more reluctant to transgress. For what man of later times would have learned of the licentious life of Semiramis, or the madness of Sardanap Sard... Ugh, give me a second with this one. Sardanapalus. He is a ruler of the Assyrian Empire, 7th century BCE, for, according to the note I have written in the margin oh, here. Lovely, good to know. So he's calling back to other crazy leaders from ages past. Yeah, so Semiramis, Sardine Palace, and of Nero. If the records of these things had not been left behind by the writers of their times. And apart from these considerations, in case any should chance to suffer like treatment at the hands of their rulers, this record will not be wholly useless to them. For those who have suffered misfortunes are wont to receive consolation from the thought that not upon themselves alone have cruel disasters fallen. You know what? I think that's very timely considering where we are and that next year is an election year. I, you know, I really feel like this is good timing. For this text, his warning is well heeded. Whether or not, you know, his warning is well heeded by the right people is the next question. Yeah, but don't let the government read this. It'll give them ideas. <laughs> I don't think they need help personally, but maybe if they did read it, they would learn what happens. I mean, as I recall, Justinian, like, had a long and successful reign. Like, I don't know that he came to a bad end. That's what I was confused by, because he writes it like like he got crucified or something. He's like, oh, man, Justinian got what he deserved. Did he, though? I don't know. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hang on. I'm going to Google this. I want to know if he did. Well, who, which Justinian is it? I think the first one. Justinian the first. Yeah, it's going to be the first one. Justinian II okay. is, is the guy who had his nose cut off. Oh, that's right. Okay. It was not universally popular. Uh, he almost lost his throne to the riots. That's right. He died November 14. No. Oh. oh, he did actually die fairly young, only in his 40s. Yeah, childless. Doesn't say how he died. Maybe that's the other part of the secret history he didn't write down. Anyway, maybe he got what he deserved. Unknown. Yeah. Alright, anyway. Sorry for the diversions. <laughs> it's okay. For these reasons, then, I shall proceed to relate, first, all the base deeds committed by Belisarius. That would be Justinian's, like, main general. If you were to make a list of, like, important pre-modern generals, he'd be on it. Yep. He's the reason that Justinian almost managed to put the Roman Empire back together. Which is crazy impressive when you think about it. Yeah. Because remember, this is from the period when they hadn't realized that, like, the fall of the Roman Empire was, like, end of an era. We're doing something different now. Yeah. Like, it was 
barely in living memory, but like it was still close enough in the past that you could be like, hey, we could we could come back from this. And like mm-hmm. Justinian mm-hmm. and Belisarius almost did. They reconquered Italy and large parts of they tried. They tried. It didn't stick. Yeah. But the point is Belisarius, very impressive general. Anyway. First, all the base deeds committed by Belisarius, and afterwards I shall disclose all the base deeds committed by Justinian and Theodora. Beautiful. Alright, there is now a introduction to the character of Antonina, who is Belisarius' wife. We're told her father was a charioteer and her mother was a prostitute. <laughs> kind of expected, like, makes sense. Yeah. One of the things that comes up a lot in this, which I think is a bit... I th- from what I understand is a very Roman-like concept, is that anyone who engages in, like, public entertainment is put in the same, like, social category as actual sex workers. Yes. Yes. Because they're using their body to entertain you, and the Romans considered that to be the same thing. Mm -hmm. But because they were also very misogynistic, they did not... They didn't go in the direction that, okay, if an actor and a sex worker are basically the same, that means sex workers are, like, acceptable. Right. They brought actors down. Yeah, they went in the other direction and were like, and therefore actors are sinful. Well, this this is actually in part, I believe, why... There were only male actors in, like, the age of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. because actresses were prostitutes. And so you couldn't have them on stage in public like that. It's not proper. And that's actually why the word actor has been historically, generally preferred for, like, females in the profession. They are female actors, not actresses, because there is a connotation of... Like prostitution, burlesques, things like that. And who knows how often that was actually true. Right. But also, looking at it from the perspective of the actresses, if you're going to be accused of it anyway, you might as well make the extra money. Yeah, that's also true, you know. And so it's something that, I mean, who knows how far back it started, but at least occurred during the Roman era, that like association. And continued on, I think, even into the 1800s, that connotation was still pretty prevalent. And I think it kind of still is in some ways. I don't, I don't know, not as much now, but it progressed for a while. Yeah. And it's, at least in the ancient world, it's not exclusively targeting female performers either. Oh, for sure. Like, when you read accounts of Nero, they really harp on the fact that he enjoyed participating in the theater and playing musical instruments and like this was scandalous to them right very scandalous these are below the dignity of an emperor they are filthy things which is funny because i'm gonna get on another like covid tangent again i remember like during that period everyone was like thank the people who make art for you to enjoy in the dark times and things like that and it's like okay so pay them pay them more like i think i think there was even like a senator it might have been ted cruz who was like these people are so important and then later he's like yeah we should cut the english department from all texas schools like bro what are you talking about if you're in any profession that people feel the need to thank it means you're being underpaid oh 100 percent, 100 percent. i don't think there's any profession where people are like we should be grateful to them and that is also paid well yeah but anyway Let's just say that that's gone on forever. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why he, he wants to specify her parentage, because to him, charioteer and prostitute are both 
very negative. Yeah, base classes. Wow, look at him channeling the Byzantine dream. If he can do it, so can you. <laughs> that too. <laughs> oh, and we should be clear that this isn't like military charioteer. This is like he races in the Hippodrome. Oh, that was context that I did not get. That makes yeah. way more sense, the entertaining fact. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Now now you know I brought that up. Yeah, yes. sorry. I thought that was obvious. No, no. I forget about that. Because I think charioteer and I think of like the Irish, you know. Like... Oh. But anyway. Yeah, no. He's a performer. Yeah, he's a racer. He's a racer. <laughs> A racehorse driver. Race chariot driver. He's Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> nice. Okay. Thank you. Anyway, we're going to talk about Antonina now. Okay. Who is the daughter of these two people and the wife of Belisarius. This woman, having in her early years lived a lewd sort of life and having become dissolute in character, not only having consorted much with the cheap sorcerers who surrounded her parents... Oh, the cheap sorcerers. I like that that's what he emphasizes. It's not like <laughs> they they did witchcraft. They're like, no, they were cheap witches. <laughs> yeah. I'm a cheap sorcerer. I don't sorcerer. know if that's meant to imply that, like, they're fakes or just, like, or just, like, like performing magic in general is kind of a low-class thing to do or, like, what that was about. That's but, yeah, amazing. the cheap sorcerers. Cheap sorcerers. Next time you make a low-level wizard character, that's what I want to see. <laughs> The cheap sorcerers who surrounded her parents, but having thus acquired the knowledge of what she needed to know, later became the wedded wife of Belisarius. Through witchcraft? Is that the implication? Yes, she apparently learned witchcraft in the theater, and probably already uh, also acting in the theater. Alright, cool. Just checking. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not just, like, idly saying, like, oh, because it said her mother was a prostitute, she, and we've had that whole thing, she's probably in the theater. It does specify that, that her mother is, quote, one of the prostitutes attached to the theater. Ah, that makes sense. We're talking show business. Yes. Later became the wedded wife of Belisarius, after having already been the mother of many children. Straight away, therefore... Great, love it, thanks. Thanks, Procopius. You know, I forgot that detail. I forgot the detail that he's going to be an absolute hole about all of this. I was like, ooh, yeah. dirt, drama. And I forgot about the fucking, like, bigoted ideas that come with that in the Middle Ages. Yes, this is, this is an extremely sex-negative text, and yep. two of the people he wants to trash are women, and that's how he goes so after that's, them. Yep, yep, makes sense. All right, well, with that out of the way. Straight away, therefore... She decided upon being an adulteress from the very start. But she was very careful to conceal this business, not because she was ashamed of her own practices, nor because she entertained any fear so far as her husband was concerned, parenthetical aside, for she never experienced the slightest feeling of shame for any action whatsoever, and she had gained complete control over her husband by means of many tricks of magic, close parentheses. Good to know but because she dreaded the punishment the Empress might inflict. Ah, yes, I'm sure Theodora, of all people, really hates it if you're a whore. Well, <laughs> apparently, this is because Theodora was all too prone both to storm at her and show her teeth in anger. I think it's just a, like... Idiom. Well, yeah, that too, but I, I was gonna say, I think it's less that, like, Theodora would disapprove, but more that, like, there's, like, a dominance issue between these oh, two high-class women. Oh, that makes more sense. It's, like, the queen versus the Madame Pompadour, like, the, the mistress. Like, I get, I get that they're not married to the same person, but it's the same kind of power struggle. Yeah. 
But after she had made her tame and manageable, I think that's Theodora had made Antonina tame and manageable, by rendering services to her in matters of the greatest urgency. Whatever that means. Having, in the first place, disposed of Silverius in the manner which will be described in the following narrative. Footnote, an unfulfilled promise. <laughs> Thanks. But apparently you can look it up because our translator is pretty sure that this refers to Pope Silverius. So you can go look up what happened to him and consider that it might be Theodora's fault. I don't remember what know. happened to him, but I'm sure something bad did because he's in here. Very likely. Future Mac here. We're going to turn to the footnotes left by Dr. Caldellus in his translation of The Secret History. A couple things to note. The tooth thing is apparently an allusion to Aristophanes. Also, Caldellus's translation specifies that it's Antonina who manages to tame Theodora by basically making herself useful so Theodora won't, you know, come down on her. And here is a substantial footnote on the Silverius thing, which I'll just read. Procopius never divulges the details of Silverius's fall. This may be a forward reference to an ecclesiastical history that he was planning to write. Pope Silverius was the son of Pope Hormisdus. He was appointed in June 536 by the Gothic king Theodahad, and deposed in March 537 by Belisarius and Antonina. According to the Book of Pontiffs, parentheses, a series of papal biographies, close parentheses, Theodora hated Silverius because he refused to restore the Bishop of Constantinople, Anthemos, who had been deposed for heresy by Pope Agapetus at a council in Constantinople in 536. She instructed Belisarius to find some pretext on which to depose him and replace him with the deacon Vigilius, whom she sent along. The pretext was that Silverius was in communication with the Goths during the Siege of Rome. Procopius and the Book of Pontiffs agree that Antonina was heavily implicated in these intrigues. Her agent in the matter was the eunuch Eugenios. Note the neutral way in which Procopius recounts the matter at Wars 525.13, quote, A suspicion fell upon Silverius, the archpriest of the city, that he was plotting a betrayal to the Goths, so that Belisarius dispatched him immediately to Greece, and soon replaced him with another archpriest named Vigilius. So there you have it. And later, having brought about the ruin of John the Cappadocian, as related by me in my earlier books, he's also going to allude to it later in this one, so we'll get some context there. Then at last she felt no hesitation in carrying out all manner of wickedness more fearlessly and with no further concealment. This is Antonina, or...? I believe so, yes. Okay. Just so that we have the right wicked woman in mind. Yeah, I think what's this sentence structure doesn't help, because it's like ten lines long. Yes, as was the style. The impression I get is that there was initially some kind of, like, conflict between them, but they figured out a way to cooperate. Makes sense. And this cooperation involves them doing favors for each other that I think involve killing people gruesomely. Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss. Yeah, there you go. So, I'm, I'm going to switch back and forth between, like, summarizing paragraphs and reading stuff out. Very fair. 
Belisarius adopted a Thracian youth named Theodosius. Quote, Antonina loved Theodosius, as she naturally would, as being her son through the sacred word. I, I think that's just adoptive son. Right. And with very particular solicitude, she kept him near herself. And straight away, she fell extraordinarily in love with him in the course of this voyage. Oh. Oh, okay. So this is like me and my stepmom vibes, like... Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Like, not quite kosher vibes. Okay. Yeah, the voyage, by the way, is a, a boat journey to Libya, which I think is part of the general military background that Army presumably anyone who started reading Procopius from Volume 1 already knows. Yeah. In the course of this voyage, and having become insatiate in her passion, she shook off both fear and respect for everything both divine and human, and had intercourse with him. At first in secret, but finally even in the presence of servants of both sexes. Oof. Yeah, alright. Anyway, uh, eventually Belisarius catches them together in some sort of, quote, underground chamber, unquote, in Carthage. Interesting, I wonder if it was a Mithraeum. For those who don't know what a Mithraeum is, well, I guess not, because those are typically for men only. I don't know. But anyway, context, a Mithraeum is an underground temple to Mithras, where certain secret rites would be performed, probably also including sex. Right. I think this is not, whatever it is, it's not currently in use, I think, because this is how Antonina responds to this. I came down here in order to hide, with the aid of the boy, the most valuable of our booty, so that it may not get to the knowledge of the emperor. Oh. Because, of course, you have to remember, when we're talking, like, ancient and medieval warfare, half the reason they're there is just to steal stuff. Yep. That's how you pay the soldiers. Yeah, and that, that makes sense, is Mithraeums probably would have fallen out of fashion at this time. All right, there so. we go, then. Might have been. Not sure, but that's my guess. Now, she said this as a mere pretext, but he, appearing to be satisfied, dropped the matter. Though he could see that the belt which supported the drawers of Theodosius, <laughs> covering his private parts, had been loosened. Why you looking, bro? For under compulsion of love for the woman, he would have it that the testimony of his own eyes was absolutely untrustworthy. I mean, that's a hell of a scandal in of itself. Right. And this now becomes common knowledge, apparently, though most just decide to not approach Belisarius about it until, and I quote, a certain slave girl named Macedonia, which is interesting because apparently the tradition of naming girls after places goes back this far. Yeah, yeah, good to know. That just took me by surprise. Yeah. I thought that names like Sydney and Paris and Brooklyn were like a, a modern phenomenon, but no, apparently they were doing it then. Yeah, that's kind of cool, though. Yeah. Basic unite. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Macedonia, the girl, not the country, approaches Belisarius in Syracuse when he had conquered Sicily, and binding her master by the most dread oaths that he would never betray her to, to her mistress, told him the whole story, adducing as witnesses two lads who were charged with the service of the bedchamber. Belisarius orders Theodosius, that's the adoptive son. Right killed, but most of his people are more inclined to curry favor with Antonina than with Belisarius, so they just uh, help Theodosius escape instead. Oh my gosh. They're like, yeah, we respect your wife more than you. Yeah. She's scary. She's a witch. She's a witch. Okay. 
A man named Constantinus, in sort of commiserating with Belisarius, says the following. If it were I, I should have destroyed the woman rather than the youth. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with that. She's definitely the, the instigator here. Yeah. Like, she's, she's the one in the position of power, not him. And when Antonina heard of this, she nourished her anger against him secretly. Good phrasing. In order that she might, when occasion offered, display the hatred she bore him. For she had the ways of a scorpion and concealed her wrath in darkness. Dang, good language. Yeah. Dr. Caldellus indicates in his notes that this line is an allusion to a lost tragic play. So essentially, she's like, I heard like you actually are on to me and would actually know how to get rid of me. So um, I'm just going to wait. And then when I see a yeah. good moment, I'm going to just Games of Thrones you and yeah, get I'm just going to nourish this hatred for Ooh. months or years, like right until it's the perfect time. Nasty. All right. Okay. Also, our translator helpfully tells us the scorpion lurks hidden under a rock or other object ready to strike suddenly any who may disturb him. In case you didn't know what that metaphor was about, yeah, now so you do. Yeah, so of course. Which I guess, readers, when was this When was this translator translating? I guess maybe they weren't familiar with scorpions? This is a translation for the 20th century. Oh, okay. First published 1935. I, yeah, I guess. See, I think we forget that they didn't have the internet. Like, I know that sounds stupid, but like, mm -hmm. you know how things, like, we just know things now, and you kind of forget that for instance, like, kids don't know things. And so then, like, when you have a kid ask you, like, what's an alligator? You're like, how do I explain what an alligator is? We did just mention uh, earlier in this episode that lots of people did not know what scorpions were. But this is also, you know, after photography was a thing. So, That's like, true. I assume people, like, there were encyclopedias. He could. That's true. You could go to your, yeah. I don't think that the note was necessary. That's fair. But whatever. Yeah. Anyway, eventually, Antoninus convinces Belisarius that the accusation is false. He allows Theodosius to return and lets Antoninus decide what to do with Macedonia and the witnesses that she had recruited. Okay. And they say that she first cut out all their tongues and then cut them up bit by bit, threw the pieces into sacks, and then without ado, cast them into the sea. Without ado? <laughs> She called. She's, yeah. Later, she also arranges the death of Constantinus because she is like a scorpion. But we don't get specifics on how that went. Ah. Just that it was, it was scorpion-esque. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Caldellus' notes inform us that there's a little more information on this in the wars. I'm going to read from his footnote. Constantinos had stolen two precious daggers from Presidius, a wealthy Italian refugee who complained to Belisarius at Rome in the winter of 537 to 538. Belisarius ordered Constantinos to return the daggers, but he refused. When Belisarius summoned his guards, Constantinos thought that he was about to be killed and tried to stab Belisarius. He was arrested and executed, quote, at a later time, Wars 6-8. In the account in the Wars, no mention is made of Antonina's role. Alright, so, next little anecdote. There is a son of Antoninus from a previous marriage named Photius. 
Antoninus or Antonina? Antonina, sorry. Okay. I was making sure. I was like, did we... Is that a different dude? Okay. Yes, because she was in theater, shall we yes. say. Theodosius convinces Antonina to get rid of Photius before Theodosius returns. This is because Photius is known to be jealous of Theodosius due to the power and wealth Theodosius has acquired. So... Her adoptive son, whom she's sleeping with, has this rivalry going with her biological son from a previous marriage, and the adoptive son is like, get rid of him. Get rid of him. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Like, the, the insecurity there makes a lot of sense. Now, when Antonina learned of the decision of Theodosius, she did not cease laying snares for the youth Photius and pursuing him with certain murderous plots until she succeeded in bringing it about that he departed from there and set out for Byzantium, being no longer able to withstand her snares, and Theodosius came to Italy to join her. So she, like, basically harasses him until he leaves. Right. They're all hanging out in Italy because they're doing that whole war thing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he just eventually decides he's done, he's going back to Constantinople. I'm not doing this anymore. And then once he leaves, Theodosius comes to join them. Okay. So she brought her biological son with her, but left her boy toy back in. Yes. Okay. So that happens. When Belisarius, Antonina, and Theodosius eventually return to Byzantium, Theodosius is worried about Antonina's indiscretion and joins a monastery. Her boy toy. Yes. Okay. He apparently didn't think the situation was stable or safe for him. Like, he's like, this is going, this is either going to get out in a way that hurts me. Right. Or, like, she's going to lose her shit on And me she's going to kill point. me, too. So he joins a monastery. I can respect that, honestly. Like, good for him. He knew when to get out. Cut from the recording here is an extended period of silence, occasionally punctuated by me going, what? Is this your notes or is this the text? Both. Oh. There's a place where I have apparently corrected the text. And I feel like what happened there is like they put the wrong name and it didn't Uh. fit in context. And so I swapped it. But I don't know if I was right. Like, what? I I took these notes years ago. Roll with it and we can fact check. All right. So the text says Theodora. But since we're talking about Antonina, I switched it to say Antonina. Okay. Who knows if that's correct. Okay. Antonina thereupon became utterly frantic, and changing her dress together with the routine of her life to the mourning mode, that's mourning with a U, she went about through the house moaning constantly, weeping and wailing even when her husband was close at hand, and lamenting what a good thing had been lost from her life, how faithful he was, how charming, how gracious, how energetic. Energetic. Ooh. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. Finally, she dragged even her husband into these scenes of lamentation and made him sit there. At any rate, the poor man used to weep and call upon the beloved Theodosius. That Yeah, that makes sense that it was... Okay, so Theodora had him killed off and Antonina is the one mourning. He's not dead. He joined a monastery. Oh, that's right. He's just gone. Theodora's not involved in this story. Okay. Yes. No, I'm following now. I'm following. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so he just, he left and she's mourning about it. Yeah. Also, I'm going to go ahead and assume that I was correct in this change because I'm yes. scanning the, not only does it fit better in context, but I'm scanning the Greek facing translation and now I don't speak Greek, 
But I do notice that the only capitalized words that start with a theta are Theodosius. Ah. I, I know enough to yeah. spot the beginning and ending letters and go like, that is a, that is a Theodosius, yeah. not a Theodora. Makes sense. Okay. Also, now that I have Dr. Caldellis's translation, you may have gathered that the book hadn't arrived yet when we recorded this by the fact that all my mentions of it are cut in like this. Anyway, I checked the text, and Dr. Caldellis's version says Antonina. So I'm going to assume that this was an error by one HB doing. I'm copy editing your shit doing. So she's mourning. But Theodosius declined absolutely to leave the place where he was, asserting that he intended to observe the practice of the monks as steadfastly as possible. Yet this answer proved to be fictitious. I like that, by the way, that use of fictitious. Yes. His purpose being that as soon as Belisarius should depart from Byzantium, he himself should come secretly to the side of Antonina. And this is exactly what happened. Ah, uh, so he had to pull a fast one on her to get her and him to believe yeah. that he was gone. Yeah. I mean, why he did any of this at all if he was just going to come back, I don't know. Well, he can make it a secret again now, right? Because it, it used be, to be yeah. kind of public. It was like a public thing. Okay, that tracks. Yeah. And now he's like, okay, fine. I'll be your lover, but it has to be our secret. Yeah, okay. So anyway, Belisarius and Photius have to go off to the war with the Sassanid Persians. They name-check Khosro I, King of Kings, which was the title of the Persian leader at the time. It's a bad title. It's a good title, yeah. And Antonina remains behind. She doesn't usually do this, because, according to um, Procopius, without her, quote, enchantments, unquote, ah. Belisarius might accidentally grow a spine. Right. So usually she has to stay near him. He might wake up from his little reverie. Yeah. Got it. But she wants this time to start a mudslinging campaign against Photius back in Byzantium. Of course. Because it's his, it's his fault that her little boy toy disappeared for a while. Very probably, yes, that is her motivation. Photius receives a report that Theodosius is again staying with Antonina because, like, now that they're out of town, he's coming he's out of the monastery. Back. Yeah. And he tells Belisarius about it. Quote, And when Belisarius heard the story, he was transported with rage and fell on his face before the feet of Photius. See, because the witchcraft wasn't in place. Yeah. And begged him to avenge his father. Yeah, that makes sense. This okay, is, maybe Photius is Belisarius' son, not yeah. Antonina's. Well, they were married at that time. True. I don't know where I looked this up. Okay, whatever. I I'm just going to trust that the me who made these notes a couple years ago... Was correct. Yeah, was correct. You tend to be. Thank you. Okay, Photius is Antonina's biological son from a previous marriage. Belisarius had formally adopted him which is why he refers to himself as Photios' father. There you go. Anyway, begged him to avenge his father who was suffering unholy treatment from those who, least of all, should do such things. Odd phrasing. Yeah, unholy's a little dramatic, but okay. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you're being cuckolded, but I don't think that's unholy. Yeah. It's just kind of like, I don't know, indicative of not a healthy marriage. Yeah, for you. Yeah. I wouldn't call it demonic. Yeah. Anyway. 
Belisarius makes a big speech, which ends thus. I'm not going to read the speech, but here's the ending. Thus would I have you take counsel concerning me, that I love my wife exceedingly. And if it be granted me to take vengeance upon the corrupter of my home, I shall do her no harm. So he still loves his wife. He's just mad at the boy toy. He's not even mad at his wife. Kind of. He does say, but while Theodosius lives, I cannot forgive her the accusation against her. So, yeah, he wants to forgive her. He wants to just let it blow over. But he's like, but I want that boy toy gone. All right. Okay. I mean, fair. Wouldn't we all? Right, but it does seem like, yeah, I think he might be still slightly enchanted. Yeah. Or just spineless. Yeah, that, yeah. Upon hearing all this, Photius said that he would indeed assist in everything, but that he feared he might suffer some harm therefrom. For he decidedly could feel no confidence in the unsteady judgment of Belisarius in matters touching his wife. For many circumstances, and in particular the fate of Macedonia, the person, not the country, yep. troubled him valid concern. He's like, I need a guarantee, my guy. Yeah, because, like, the last person who tried to help you out in this, you let your wife, like, dismember and throw into the sea, so... Yeah. What's gonna happen this time? Yeah. Yeah. What What's happening? Accordingly, the two men swore to each other all the oaths which are the most terrible among the Christians, and are in fact... Yeah, Procopius, his religious affiliation is unclear. Right. But he always refers to Christians in the third person, and it's not clear whether he's doing that because, like, he's expecting this to be read by people who aren't Christians, mm -hmm. or if he is himself not a Christian. And can't say that. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm curious as to whether, like, the oaths that are most unholy for the Christians, it, does that mean they're pagan oaths, or... No, they're the most terrible. The most terrible. Okay, so does that mean, like, these are the most severe Christian oaths you can take? Or does this mean that these are, like, the most pagan? I think it means they're the most severe. Severe, right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because I feel like terrible is being used in the same way that you can use the word awesome. Off yeah, awesome or awful, like, full of awe. Yeah. Yeah. They are oaths that are terrible in that they inspire terror and thus prevent you from breaking them, is my interpretation. Right. Or if you look upon them, you're like, like, like the oath of Feanor, right? Like, oh, he's going to go to the end of the earth to make this happen. That freaks me out. There you go. There's your Tolkien reference of the day. Yep. I don't know what to do with that one. <laughs> anyway, they swore these oaths which are most terrible among the Christians and are in fact so designated by them that they would never betray each other, even in the presence of dangers threatening destruction. So a plan is hatched that on an upcoming trip that Theodosius will take to Ephesus, Photius will ambush Theodosius. Okay. After a short time, said trip occurs, Antoninus heads east towards Belisarius, because he's still out of town doing war things. Yep. Ephesus, by the way, at the time was fairly well known for being and or having been like the city of the wicked like it's a coastal city it's like a town where like all the brothels are and things like that that's why ephesians is a letter by paul written to ephesus he's like y'all need to get your shit together if you time travel go <laughs> to ephesus it's really interesting as a city i would i would love to do like a cross section of what the town looked like in terms of internal politics between like the Christians and the status quo and how it changed over time. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. All right, so back to reading directly. And just after Belisarius had captured the fortress of 
Good God. <laughs> I'd cut in a better pronunciation, but Googling this gives me nothing. Like, there's a Wikipedia page for the place, but it doesn't include the pronunciation. Usually, when you try and find how to pronounce a proper noun, you at least get some kind of unreliable nonsense websites where people just run the words through a text-to-speech program and hope it comes out right and call that a pronunciation guide. This doesn't even have that, so we're just going to have to stick with my guess at it. Cisaranon, I think. It's spelled S-I-S-A-U-R-A-N-O-N. Cisaranon, perhaps? Cisaranon? Cisaranon? I am not Greek myself. It was reported to him by someone that she was on her way, and to Nina, that is. Whereupon he, accounting all other things as of no importance, led his army back. Which is wild. That is insane. Oh, my wife's here. Everyone, stop the siege. Yeah, we're going home. (laughs) I get to see my wife. Like, talk about stopping an army for your love. Like, yeah. not, not in, like, the Achilles Patroclus way, but, like, in the, no, I'm going to stop my own army <laughs> because I love my wife that much and I miss her. Yeah, there's kind of a note from Procopius after this that says, like, all right, so in my, like, official history of this war, I said that there were other, like, strategic reasons why he retreated here. But no. And, like, those were factors, but it was mostly so he could see his wife. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Wow. As a result of this action, Belisarius was accused by all Romans. All of them. Even Jeff the Cowherd, who had no idea any of this was happening. Yeah. As having subordinated the most vital interests of the state to those of his own family. I'm going to summarize, looks like, the next few pages. Jesus. We are informed that it was a habit of Belisarius throughout this war to avoid going too far from Roman territory so he could keep an eye on his family drama. Oh my gosh. Which is interesting, because, like, when they were, like, reassembling the Empire, they didn't get back, like, Gaul or any of that. And, like, maybe that's just because it was too far and Belisarius didn't want to go there. That's really funny. And now my brain is, like, going off on, like, the ideas about Sparta. Like, yeah, if your homie's right next to you, then you're not worried about going deep into enemy territory because he's right next to you. Or, like... That's why you bring all your, you know, mistresses with you in the cattle train or whatever, mm-hmm. so that you can keep your family drama localized. Yeah. It's really inconvenient when you're being cuckolded from across the globe. I'm not willing to say that this is the actual reason, but it does correlate with the fact that I don't think Belisarius ever really tried to take the more Western parts of the Western Roman Empire. That's hysterical. So he's a brilliant general whose major failure was that he was cuckolded. Right. And apparently... That's amazing. What's the word I'm looking for? Ensorcelled? Ensorcelled? (laughs) Bewitched? Thank you. That's the one. (laughs) Hey, that's okay. I'm I'm messing up my words today, too. Uh, Anyway, Procopius then goes on to describe various troop movements, the gist of which is that Belisarius failed to do significant damage to Persian lands and... Khosros, the aforementioned King of Kings, was able to return home in security and good standing among his men. Five pages of material right there. Troop movements. Have some balls, man. Honestly, like, if you know that you're being cucked anyway, 
Can't you deal with it when you get back? I know I'm like sitting on this one a little too long, but like, why do you have to do it right now? (laughs) There's a war on. Also, just the fact that you're like nearby doesn't seem to help. No. They've been doing this when they're traveling with you. That's true. That's another really good point. What are you going to do, bro? Oh, no. Okay. Well, great. Let's see what happens. When Belisarius had reached Roman territory, he found that his wife had arrived from Byzantium, and he kept her under guard in disgrace. And though he many times set about destroying her, his heart was softened. I think that means he, like, was about to, like, have her killed or exiled or something. And he's like, and I, can't. Like, no, I can't. No, I can't. His heart was softened, being vanquished, as it seems to me, by a sort of flaming hot love. <laughs> like a flaming hot Cheeto? Like, why is it that way? Why did you pick those words? Flaming hot love sounds like an 80s song. <laughs> yeah, it's like a really bad love song. Flaming hot love. <laughs> I think it would be even better if it were a bad 80s style love song about flaming hot cheetos oh no like not not like two flaming hot cheetos but like using them as a metaphor yeah yeah i love you like i love flaming hot cheetos yeah Yeah, it's a flaming hot love Ooh, baby baby (laughs) yeah that that should exist or rather it shouldn't but i want it to oh no all right progress all right so his heart is vanquished by his flaming hot love But they say that it was also through her magic arts that he was brought under the control of the woman and immediately undone. Now Photius set off in haste for Ephesus, taking with him as a prisoner one of the eunuchs, because we are in the time and place when you have eunuchs, although I think that uh, in the Byzantine era they were around for like most of Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. One of the eunuchs, Caliganus by name, who acted as a go-between for his mistress, and he on this journey revealed to him, under torture, all the woman's secrets, just casually putting in there. Under Under torture. torture. Love it. But Theodosius, having advance information, fled for safety to the sanctuary of the Apostle John, which is the most holy one there and held in very high honor. I don't know, apparently there's a sanctuary in Ephesus to the Apostle John. Interesting. Isn't there a John of Ephesus? That sounds really familiar. Yeah, yes. Is it the same one? Ah, let me find out. Ah, John of Ephesus was a leader of the early Syriac Orthodox Church in the 6th century and one of the most important historians to write in Syriac. All right, that's probably going to be a different one then, because that means he's roughly contemporary to this text, so there probably aren't... Like, he's still around. I was gonna <laughs> say, like, the, the apostle apostle, like, the apostle, like, that's not him. It's a different guy. Yeah. He was sent by Justinian on a mission for the conversion of such pagans as remained in Asia Minor in 542. So he's, not only is he, like, someone who's still around, but he's someone who's still around in roughly the same place who yeah. Procopius might have met. Yeah. And apparently he baptized 70,000 people. Did he use a squirt gun? I feel like you'd have to. Or, like, you're leading them all into the ocean at the same time. You're like, boom, one and done. All at once or, like, total over his life? Over the course of his mission in Asia Minor, he baptized 70,000 people. You know, I could see that if you were doing, like, like if you had a crowd and you were doing the, like, yeah. Asperg, Asperg, what's the, what's the sprinkly thing called? I don't know. I'm not Catholic. If you had one of the little shakers... Yeah, if you had one of the shaky, sprinkly things, yeah. 
I think it's called an aspergillum, but I may be thinking of something else. That's cool. And, you, like, you did the whole crowd. Or if you, like, led them into a body of water and did, like, the dunking thing yeah. one at a time, like, you could probably <laughs> get through people pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Also, fun fact, I guess, about holy water is that it doesn't get diluted. And so there are, like... Spanish Mimas who got like a little vial of holy water from the Vatican and they'll dump it into like a gallon container of water and now it's all holy water, right? Mm -hmm. So they just refill it when they need it and it's all holy water. And I just I just love that like it it feels like alchemy, like this alchemic fact about holy water. And so I feel like at that point everything that we're drinking is holy water at some point. Like, right. what, like yeah. can if, you... if it doesn't get diluted at all, yeah. then logically every water that's connected to ev- any other water would have to be holy by now. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, my question is, like, if you put holy water through a filtration system, does it filter out the holiness? That's a good question. Yeah. Like, can you... Okay, so you can't dilute it, but can you filter it? When does the holy... Like, when does the holy water stop being holy? I think you should set up a double-blind experiment where you filter some holy water and not filter other holy water, and then throw those holy waters on two separate vampires and see how That's it works. That's a good idea. I'll have to set that up. Anyway, listeners, if you or a loved one is interested in a double-blind test and happen to be undead, please hit me up. I, I have a, an experiment. I can pay you for your time. Anyway, fun fact about holy water. Yeah, anyway, yes. And hoarding Mimas. Like, they do. It's the funniest thing. I like the uh, cross-cultural phrase you've constructed there with Spanish Mimas. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't... It's, I guess it's Abuela, isn't it? Abuela is yeah. what I would have gone with, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one didn't pop into mind. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Theodosius is hiding at the Sanctuary of the Apostle John, who is... Now that I think of it, he's an apostle. He's definitely the one from the Bible. What were we doing? <laughs> which is the most holy one there and held in high honor. Andreas, however, the chief priest of Ephesus, accepted a bribe and delivered the man over to Photius. At this point, Theodora, being solicitous for Antonina, for she had heard all that had happened to her, Theodosius seeks sanctuary. The priest has been bribed, does right. not give him sanctuary, takes him prisoner, turns him over to Photius. Meantime, Theodora is now entering the story. Okay. The Empress. We're tracking. We're tracking. Summoned Belisarius and her to Byzantium. Meantime, Photius puts Theodosius under guard in Cilicia, which is not the Cilicia you're, you're thinking of. This is Cilicia C-I-L, not Cilicia S-I-L. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And also goes to Byzantium. Oh, never mind. This is not Cilicia at all. I wrote myself a pronunciation guide. It is pronounced Cilicia. Cilicia. That sounds like a name. It does. I feel like you could do, like, we already had Macedonia. Now we have Cilicia. Cilicia? Yeah. Yeah. Cilicia. (laughs) And then I have noted under my, like, little IPA, this is different from Cilicia, which is in Central Europe. Yes. Thank you, past me. You were on the ball. You take great notes. Apparently. <laughs> I wish I could do this when I was, you know... Doing, doing your PhD. Work that I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, doing the work I'm supposed to be doing. Anyway, that happens. Theodosius is under guard in Cilicia, and it goes to Byzantium. There, the Empress, Theodora, made an exhibition before all mankind, showing that she... Every time I say showing, by the way, it's spelt shooing in oh, this yes. translation, yep. but I'm not doing that. 
fair enough. This was one of those, like, weird English things that was still happening at the time, which seems late for the 30s, but okay. Oh, I mean, it might be consciously anachronistic. Ugh, that's worse. Yeah. Anyway, showing that she knew how to requite bloody favors with greater and more unholy gifts. For whereas Antonina had recently laid snares for one enemy for her, the Cappadocian, and I have a note here, John the Cappadocian was a Praetorian prefect and political rival of Theodora, who was driven into exile. And then a clarifying note. In classical times, the Praetorian prefect was the head of the Praetorian guard. At this point, however, the position has transformed into a high-level administrative role. That makes sense. So Antonina had apparently laid snares for, and thus driven into exile, the Praetorian prefect, who was a rival of Theodora. And had betrayed him, she herself delivered over to Antonina a host of men, and brought about their destruction, without even a charge having been brought against them. So Theodora is so grateful to Antonina for getting rid of this prefect that she's happy to kill, like, whoever. Dude, this is crazy. I know, right? Like, when you actually think about it, like, holy shit, man. Okay, like, and anyone who's like, well, women didn't have any power in the Middle Ages. Like, I understand that this is a woman in a highly privileged position, but to be able to order anybody to their deaths on a whim is a crazy amount of power. Right. And to hear this be so offhand is insane. I think this is a couple of things. Like, one, this is an example of informal power that she holds. Yeah. She does not have a formal role. Uh Uh-uh. But because she's married to the emperor people will obey her in similar ways. And also, I think that one of the things that Procopius is criticizing about both Justinian and Belisarius is that they let their wives run things too much. So he may be focusing on that. Oh, I'm sure he is. But still, that's that's a lot. Anyway, let's talk about some of those hosts of men. For she first tortured certain intimates of Belisarius and Photius, that means friends, friends of Belisarius and Photius, alleging against them only the fact that they were on friendly terms with these two men and then so disposed of them that up to this day we do not yet know what their final fate was. So she tortured and then like just disappeared people. You also have to realize like I studied this period independently while I was in university and this was a time like Justinian's reign in particular especially while these riots were going on were kind of a crazy as f- time like it there was a point where and it might have been these riots in particular um, I'll have to check but I mean they, I don't think we've gotten to the riots yet. well no but at the riots like some of these riots started in the city because sporting events got too out of hand right yeah the main like gangs in the city yeah. were the sports, sports teams. fans yeah what was it? It's the, the blues and the greens yeah. are the big teams because they're all named after colors. Yeah, the blues and the greens. And like, imagine if like the football fans of your city were like starting fires and destroying things. Yeah. Like because they win or lose or like whatever. I mean, that's, that is a thing that happens that is, actually. Yeah. In South America, right? No, here. Looting like that? I mean, I don't know to what degree they loot, but yeah, there are sports riots here. That's true, but this is like a city-wide people are dying, the cops can't put this down sort of thing. Ah, fair, alright. It's a little, it's freaky, it's freaky. Right, and these weren't just sports fans, like they were, that was their main thing, but they were a formal organization. Yeah, yeah. That like had some degree of actual power. 
Which is wild. Alright, so, anyway, Theodora is disappearing people. Yep. Others, too, she punished by banishment, laying this same charge against them. I.e. that they're just, they're that they friends. are friends of the people she wants to go after. But one of those who had fo- oh, that's not confusing. But one of those who had followed Photius to Ephesus, Theodosius by name. Oh, another one. Yeah, another one. Great, okay. We're tracking. Oh, good, we're not spending a lot of time on him. We don't need to worry about Okay. Him. Though he had attained the dignity of senator. Which didn't mean much at this time. Right, yeah, they had emperors now. The Senate's basically a social club. Yeah, for the rich. Yeah. She stripped him of his property and forced him to stand in an underground chamber, which was utterly dark, tying his neck to a sort of manger with a rope so short that it was always stretched taut for the man and never hung slack. So the poor wretch stood there continuously at this manger, both eating and sleeping and fulfilling all the other needs of nature, and nothing except braying was needed to complete his resemblance to the ass. Holy shit. Yeah. For those of you who only know the word from, like, the story from the Bible, a manger is like the container you put a horse's food in. Yeah. That's why he's tied to it. That's where his food is. She took this man and said, you're an ass, but I'm going to make you a literal one. So she tied him to, like, a horse's food pen, basically. Yeah stripped him of his clothes, and was like, here you go, in a dark, like, cave room. Yep. That's f***ed. And the time amounting to not less than four months was passed by the man in this existence, until he was attacked by the disease of melancholy, became violently insane, and so finally was released from this confinement and then died. Oh my gosh. I thought we were going to get like, oh, Theodosia like screws other men. I was I mean, not. She does ex- that too. Well, right. But I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. All right. And she forced Belisarius, quite against his will, to become reconciled with his wife Antonina. She then inflicted sundry servile tortures upon Photius. I believe that in this case, servile means things that you would do to a servant or slave. Sundry servile tortures upon Photius, among others combing his back and his shoulders with many lashes. Yeah. Combing is an unusual word choice there. And commanded him to tell where in the world Theodosius and the go-between, so the guy working for Photius, were. But he, though being racked with torture, determined to hold fast to his oath. For though he was a sickly person, and had in early life been dissolute, yet he had been devoted to the care of his body, having experienced neither wanton treatment nor hardship. At any rate, he disclosed not one of the secrets of Belisarius. That's impressive. At a later time, however, everything which hitherto had remained secret came to light. She also found Caliganus, that's the eunuch, and handed him over to Antonina and she summoned Theodosius to Byzantium, and upon his arrival, straightaway concealed him in the palace. The next day, she summons Antonina, brings out Theodosius, quote, And Antonina was so overjoyed that she at first remained speechless with pleasure, and then she acknowledged that Theodora had done her a great favor, calling her savior and benefactor and mistress in very truth. And the empress detained this Theodosius in the palace, and bestowed upon him luxury and all manner of indulgence, and threatened that she would make him a Roman general after no long time. Threatened. I think that's threatening to other people. Like, I'll make this this idiot a general. Oh, that makes sense. Oh my gosh. 
but a sort of justice forestalled her, for he was seized by an attack of dysentery and removed from <laughs> the world. So, uh, Oregon Trail-style way to go out for a Theodosius there. I had a friend get that. Not good. Real bad. I've heard it's pretty rough. It's real bad. Oh, gosh. What a way to go, honestly. Yep. But at least that bit's over. Now, Theodora had concealed rooms, which were completely hidden, being dark and isolated, where no indication of night or day could be observed. There she confined Photius and kept him under guard for a long time. Photius manages to escape a couple times. A couple times? A couple times, yeah. Oh no! He keeps getting recaptured! Yep. Oh gosh. I'm summarizing like half a page of material with that. Once claiming sanctuary in the Hagia Sophia, but the Empress does not care about sanctuary, so that doesn't work. Right. For no inviolable spot ever remained inaccessible to her, but it seemed nothing to her to do violence to any and all sacred things. And not only the populace, but also the priests of the Christians, smitten with terror, stood aside and conceded everything to her. So a period of three years was passed by him in this manner of life that is confined in a prison cell with no windows or light. Oh my gosh. But afterwards, the prophet Zachariah stood over him in a dream and with oaths, they say, commanded him to flee. Huh. That would be the biblical figure, I think. I have to assume. Yeah. Okay. Promising that he would lend him a hand in this undertaking. Persuaded by this vision, he got away from there, and, escaping detection, came to Jerusalem. And though countless persons were searching for him, no man saw the youth, even when he stood before him. There he shaved his head, and by clothing himself in the garb of the monks, as they are called, he succeeded in escaping the punishment of Theodora. And that's the point I marked as where to stop. Good! I'm glad for him! This is gonna be a doozy. Yep. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, welcome to Procopius, everybody. <laughs> right? Wow. Yeah, wait till we start talking about Justidian himself. Oh my gosh. That's right, because he's all weird and wonky looking. Procopius seems to think that he's possessed by demons. We'll get to that. These guys. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, shall we go, go into our segments? All Tobras. Should we do a best death then? I mean, some hmm. some of them are wild. Like, yeah, I'm just gonna order this group of guys killed because I like I owe this lady a favor. That's yep. pretty rough. Death by dysentery, also rough. Right. There was the slave girl who got dismembered. Oh my gosh. And the senator who went crazy and. Oh my gosh. Yep, and th then died of unspecified reasons. That's gotta be the worst one. Like, usually we pick, like, the most heroic death or whatever, but dude, that guy went through it. I hope he got some peace. Let's call that our, our best but, death yeah. of the... Yeah, that was... That's wild, that's is what that crazy. is. That's crazy. Yeah. How would we use this in a game? Gosh. I've got some things written down. Let's see. Let's go back to the top. Mm -hmm. And start with Procopius himself, because I love the idea of a bard or historian or whatever who is there and a part of the party to recount history, to like copy these things down. And I think it would be great if 
Like, I don't know how you want to RP that, but I feel like there's so many opportunities to role play where you're like, oh, no, no, I'm going to do this action because it would make for a better story later. And so what Mm -hmm. you're thinking about is not necessarily the most practical thing to do, but it's the most heroic thing to do or it makes the best story later, I think would be great. Or like you're writing down, you're like, this guy, I'm going to make sure he goes down in history. Like this particular NPC is going to go down in history as an asshole. And you just carry that grudge with you. For the entire campaign. And then finally, at the end, you're like a level 20 bard. You've done all these amazing things. And your book is enshrined, right, in the Mm. campaign. I think that could be really, really fun. One of the things that I kept coming back to reading this is, I think there's a lot of room for a campaign that is based around palace intrigue. Yes. I have this concept where the campaign takes place almost entirely within the palace, only occasionally venturing out into like the city around it. Like, you'd have to make the palace, like, huge, huge and have, like, weird corridors. And, like, you'd, you'd make it a, a House of Leaves-style palace, really. Yeah, yeah. But you could have a campaign that takes place entirely within the palace, and it's all about the competing factions within the court and dealing with, with their various plots and intrigues, which, of course, if this is a D&D game, would involve various spells and supernatural creatures and what have you like it would be it would get yeah like the minotaur and and the labyrinth yeah Yeah. when i say based around palace intrigue i don't just mean like they stand around talking all the time i mean like there's supernatural events and danger and whatnot yes but it's all within the palace and it's all in service of getting the right people in charge yes i love that i think there's so much there and i think we a lot of times think of quests or campaigns as like you go out and you do something but there's so much to be said for storytelling in a singular location and not to go off on too much of a tangent but i guess that's something that we explored in pentiment was like the entire game takes place in one town and so it was really Mm -hmm. cool to explore change over time and how you can affect that town and i think that's a new avenue of storytelling that dms and players can embrace that feels a little bit fresher than necessarily a huge map and giant campaign and things like that or like like now that i said it like with the minotaur on crete maybe it's just one island and that's where the palace is located Mm -hmm. right and that's it there you go that's your campaign yeah when i was tossing this around i've had this kind of in the back of my head ever since i read this the idea i had was actually very similar it kind of opposite approach but similar <laughs> point in that i was picturing it as being in a walled city in the middle of the desert Ooh, so that's like, great you you can't go anywhere like yeah yeah there's a trade route that comes through but like if you just like leave you're just wandering yep walled city campaign that's cool the other one that i love is cheap sorcerer yes do what you will with that i think there's so much there whether it comes down to like all your tricks are fake or the idea that there's like, oh, yes, the proper sorcerers who went to school, kind of like a Mr. Norrell type thing. I've not read that one. I have not. It's massive. It is a huge book. But that's, I think, in early 20th century England. And it's basically the idea that magic has died out in England but there are people who do magic tricks and they do little parlor tricks and it's seances, but all of it's fake, right? And then there's a very small like cabal that has real magic. They they learn how to do real magic the way it was done in the old days. 
And so it's sort of this, like, oh, those are the cheap sorcerers versus the real magic mm-hmm. users. So you could frame it like that. I don't know. There's, I think there's a lot there that you could start with or just the idea of... Like you're a ch- you're a cheap wizard when you start out at level one, and your whole goal is to become like an arch wizard or whatever. I think that could be really fun. I lo- what I like about it is that when I initially read it, I pitched the idea that like oh, they're maybe he means they're fakes, right? But like she learned magic from them, right? So clearly they're not like they're <laughs> they are actual sorcerers doing actual magic, and Procopius still thinks they're they're cheap, cheap for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, because they're with the prostitutes and they're with the actors, and oh, that's probably it. Yeah, He's just like no, these these are the type of sorcerers who hang around with those yeah. people. those people. But like, what an idea, right? That there's different classes of wizardry, because I feel like in a lot, like, again, a lot of the campaigns that we play in, it's like, oh, if you have magic, you're instantly upper class. You're instantly somebody with power. But the idea that there are different types of people who do magic and that there's like upper class wizardry and lower class wizardry and magic, I think Mm -hmm. is really compelling. So there you go. Cheap sorcerer. I also love the idea of a revenge plot to kill the boy toy. Yeah, I think that's an incredible hook to give your players. And you can either do it in that like funny comical way, or you can do it in the snubbed emperor or snubbed noble, snubbed lord, snubbed whoever. Mm-hmm. And then your characters are like, well, we got to go get this guy. And there's intrigue all over the place with this, you know, because he's involved over here and he's doing that thing. And there's, you know, he's best friends with this dude and there's this adoptive son. And I don't know, I feel like there's there's so much you can play with there as well. Yeah, you would have to make sure the boy toy was a legitimately dangerous person, however, otherwise it might feel weird. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's also something there. It's like you take on this contract or whatever to investigate this guy who's being cuckolded, and they get there and they realize, like, maybe he's being taken advantage of. Maybe the boy toy is actually a prostitute, and he's like, you guys can't kill me. Like, I'm legally allowed to do this. Like take it up with the wife. Like there's so many different offshoots you could go with Mm -hmm. in terms of how you can role play that, what the circumstances are, different paths of intrigue, maybe the prostitute or like the boy toy is there actually to get intrigue on the Lord because he's the real bad guy, the Lord. So how could you guys be working for him? I'll pay you more if you work for me. I don't know. I feel like there's there's a lot there. Yeah. So what else have you got? Honestly, I think the uh, idea for a palace intrigue campaign was the only thing that actually stuck with me. Although I do like, I do like the idea of sorcerers who travel with the theater. I just think that's fun. We already dwelt on that a bit, but I just think it's good. But like, what if all the sorcery they can do is like make sparks to make the show better? <laughs> like, that's so cute. Ah, oh, that's fun. The only other idea that I had was an NPC who is a general, but his major failure is that he's a cuckold. Yep. I think that's amazing as a character. I have no idea how you would incorporate that. Maybe like you're a level one fighter and you've been disgraced and that's your character concept. Or like maybe he's a big NPC and he's like, I I have to go overseas but I have to deal with this too. I don't know. I think I think he's hilarious as a character. I feel like it would be good to use that to bring in the, um, you can get the general to retreat by appealing to his family drama Ooh, kind of thing. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You're up against this boss and it's like, yeah, but, uh, oh, what was the freaking hang on? Because this is not the first time this has happened, actually. Um, 
Yes. Okay. So there's a fabulous flag that was used during the English Civil War. And it, it on it, it's red and white. And on it, it says, come out, you cuckold. And it was used on the field to refer to the Earl of Essex's notorious marital problems. <laughs> That's hilarious. And so they, they go into battle, right? And like, imagine like you're like, you're next to the Earl and he's like about to go into battle and, or they're like not fighting or whatever. And just across the field, you see this flag that just says, come out, you cuck. 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's very good. So that's a real thing. You can look it up. I'm going to link it because why not? It's hilarious. And it's got a picture of a cow in a barrel. I assume that means something in like some something. All I can think of is that like traditionally cuckoldry is symbolized by horns and cows have horns. Oh, that's probably what it is. But like that, that does not explain the barrel. I don't know. Or why a cow? I don't know either. But uh, there's also another version that just says "cuckolds we come." That's uh, <laughs> that's some phrasing that that hits different yeah. in the modern era. Yeah. So there you go. There's your fun fact of the day. This is not the first time this has happened. We've been abusing generals' marriage problems for literally thousands of years. Yep. It's gonna be linked as "come out, you cuck" flag. <laughs> Great. <laughs> All right. What else have we got? That's all I had for... Uh... Yeah, that's that's all I've got, too. All right. What's our next one? How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? If you can think of any echoes in modern culture, that's next. But that's one of the ones I have marked to skip if we can't think of anything. I mean, literally look at our news today. Yeah, you know, this does feel... I mean... Like no, parts of it feel unfamiliar, but like the vibe the, feels the familiar. vibe feels very similar, especially because like Marjorie Taylor Green got caught, you know, wanking a dude in the theater. No, that was Lauren Bobert. Oh, Bo- was it Bobert? I can't tell them Bobert. apart anymore. Yeah. Different idiot. Different idiot. Yeah, but like when you have elected officials doing these things, and you're staring at them, and you're like, you're in charge of our country. Like it's the same vibe. Mm. And so Procopius is like, these are the people in charge of our country. And I feel like we're doing the same thing every single day. There's your modern culture. It's just politics. It's always been politics. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) But yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. D&D party. This would be an evil campaign. Yes. So with that in mind... We have, obviously, Theodosius, or sorry, Theodosia and Antonina. Theodora. Theodora. And Antonina. Oh my gosh. The two crazy bitches. Yep. Yep. We got them. Who else yep, do we they're want? they're going to be helpful. Yeah. I guess Belisarius can come along. Like, he's good on the battlefield. That's true. That's true. Charisma's his lowest stat. Mm-hmm. And who else do we want? Do we want the boy toy? Do we just want to, like, shove them all in a room together? Honestly, that would be an interesting... Campaign. Yeah, campaign, yeah. Yeah. I almost want to have one of the wizards come along just for extra fun, but I guess that's what Theodosia does anyway. Antonina. Or Antonina. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to mix them up this I whole know, time. I know, right? I can't. They they both do such horrible things. Yeah, they're, they're being characterized very similar. Yeah. There we go. Evil party. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Terminology. Celicia. Grab that as a name, Celicia. It's a cool name. Can you spell it, actually? C-I-L-I-C-I-A, Celicia. 
Okay. According to my notes. I don't know where it's located. I don't so I don't know if it's like still a current place name or just a place name that is obsolete. But it's a good one. Other terms. I don't know, flaming hot love. <laughs> God. Oh, apparently it's still a uh it's a current term. It is a geographical region in southern Anatolia. There you go. Cilicia. Like it looks like it's kind of the southeastern coast of Turkey basically. Hmm. Well, there you go. Quit naming your kids Paris and Beverly and That's not a place. Austin. Beverly? Beverly Beverly Hills. I thought Beverly Hills was named after the personal name Beverly rather than vice versa. I don't know. The Rodeo Land and Water Company renamed the property Beverly Hills after Beverly Farms in Beverly, Massachusetts. Okay, I got it. It is a name that comes from a place name, but that place is not Beverly Hills because it was... There is a town in Yorkshire called Beverly, which comes from... Which means beaver clearing, apparently. Lee means like meadow or clearing. Beaver is beaver. Which then became a surname. Got it. Which then became a first name. Got it. Which then became a place name. Right. Okay. In a different place. In a different place. And so it went from Yorkshire to Massachusetts to California. Yeah. All right. Did you know? (laughs) We're learning so much. Well, but there you go. All right. Celicia, any other terms that we want to steal? It's pretty it's pretty light in terms of interesting terms. Right, yeah. I'm seeing if there's any like unusual word choices to point out but uh, on the part of the translator, mm-hmm. but that would be it. If you are looking for interesting words for like positions of power, like we had senator, but there's also like praetorian, which has different connotations and contexts. So there were some interesting words for for those things. Yeah, you know what? I just don't think there's a lot here, terminology-wise. Fair enough. It's weird. You can take the personal and place names, though. Those are good. True. Street smart! Okay, what do we learn from this text, Mac? Aside from, government has always been the same. Theater kids can do magic. True. I think is what I've learned. I don't know, I feel like we've known this for a long time. <laughs> but does, yeah, that statement just feels true. Right. Every theater kid has been in a D&D campaign. Like, that chart, it's just a circle. It's just, that Venn diagram is just a circle. I was gonna say, like, I've, n- I've known some, like, theater kids who weren't into D&D, but also, the time in my life when I hung around theater kids, because, like, after you're in your mid-twenties, they're no longer kids. Yep. Was kind of before D&D was popular. That's fair. That's so right. I fully believe that now the theater kids might all play D&D. They might all play D&D, yeah. But yeah, theater kids can do magic. Gosh. Apparently, military decisions can be channeled from love, and they can they can be the wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. If your boss and his wife are having marital problems, stay out of it. Don't say anything. Don't say a thing. It's only going to end in tears. Yeah, yeah. And or dismemberment. Yep becoming a monk or a nun is a great way to escape legal trouble. Yes. Take religious vows to avoid your responsibilities. You know, when you say it like that, I feel like I feel like that's actually what a lot of people did in the Middle Ages. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I wish it was still an option. Dang. Apparently there's a whole application process now. I've, la- I've looked into there's it. There's an application process? One of my exes was uh, a lapsed Catholic, and so I asked them about, like, hey, 
what's the deal with, like, becoming a monk? Like, can I still do that? And they were like, there's, like, an application process and a probation period, and it's all designed around, like, trying to filter out people who, exactly like you, don't actually believe in this stuff, but just want to live in a monastery. (laughs) We gotta go back to the old days when you could just be one. Right? It should, yeah, I, I still think it should be a vocation. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of sad. Like, I get it, I get it, because it is, like, a faith-based organization, but also there's something to be said for tending to a community yeah. in that way without I will pretend to be Christian if I get to live in a monastery and, yeah. like, copy manuscripts all day or whatever they do these days. Yeah, and if you think for one second that every single monk or nun historically has been a practicing faithful Christian, you are so wrong. Yeah, no way. No way. But anyway, all of that aside, any other things that we learn? That's all I can think of. Yeah. Also, by the way, listeners, if the sound quality on my end has declined over these past few minutes, it's because either I was unable to filter out the background noise, or the filtering out the background noise made my voice tinny, which also happens sometimes. My new place is like a block from the train tracks, and there is a train going by. Oh, that would do it. That's right. Yeah, you've got your whole new office set up, which looks great, by the way, listeners. Like, you're missing out on these beautiful bookshelves. Just the whole back wall is just bookshelves. I just finished putting all this together, like, this afternoon. So I'm thinking about, like, maybe maybe I'll put a, a picture up on yeah. Tumblr so that listeners can go look for it. Definitely. I'm quite proud that it's done. It's great. Okay, anyway. Best moment. For me, it's when Belisarius turns the army around. Yeah. To deal with this family family drama. That is pretty ridiculous. That's insane. Like, you are stopping a historical event because of your family drama. Amazing. 10 out of 10. It's either that or that poor guy who was stuck in a cave as an ass. But I feel so bad for that guy. That's not the best moment. That's the most horrifying moment. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fact that Theodosius' story ends with him abruptly dying of dysentery, but I'm not sure that qualifies as <laughs> best moment. That's true! Oh, honorary mention moment. All right. All right. The court. It's, it's the court. Whom would you like to pick? Oh my gosh. Do I have to? They're all so <laughs> awful. Okay. All right. I mean, some of them are okay. Some of them are okay. All right, you know who I want? I want to go a little meta. I want Procopius. You know, I kind of expected you to do that. I guess he is technically a character in the story. He's in the story, man. All right. Does he count? He's he's mortal. He died. He's in the story. Fair enough. So let's see. Um, I I need to also pick. If you pick Theodora, I'm going to laugh. Honestly, she's one of the two I'm considering. Oh my gosh, she's awful. Actually, you know what? I want Antonina, because she can do magic and bewitch people. That's true. All right. Maybe I'll come back for Theodora later. Oof. Final rating. Hmm, that's a tough one. I'm going to give this one... I don't know. I feel like it's kind of a rough start. And maybe that's just because we're, like, getting into the flow of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a seven. Because I was... I don't know, and maybe maybe this is my, like, modern brain being like, I wanted a gossip magazine and not, like, war crimes. Right. 
We went a little hard, you know, Theodora. So I'm going to give it a seven and we're going to see where it goes from here. I'm kind of getting, it's like, I'm enjoying it. It's crazy, but I'm going to give it like an upper middle rating for now. Yeah. I'm in a similar place for a different reason. I'm giving it, I'm going to go with a six because I was not surprised by the war crimes because that was (laughs) what I was primed for going in before I read it the first time. But I just feel like it takes a while to get off the ground yeah. and get started. He has a very long-winded introduction. And his decision to start by talking about Belisarius instead of Justinian, whom this is presumably about, about is weird to me. Yeah. I'm going to match you. I'm going to match you at a six. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. So we were in stones. So why don't we do a couple more stones? All right, let's do some stones. This one you will probably not recognize. It is a Praecine or a Praecius. You know, I was going to say, like, I work in a place that sells crystals, I'm sure. But no, I don't know that one. Yeah, it's it just means green. Like, it means something green or having the green color of a leek. Very interesting. Particularly a leek green crystal translucent quartz is precisely what it is. There's a bit of messing around trying to figure out what this rock is in the recording. I've cut it out, and I'm going to summarize here. Praesine, spelled P-R-A-S-I-N-E, is, like Zoe says, a word that means leek green in color. The OED says that it is now considered a synonym of pseudomalachite, which just means something that looks like malachite but isn't, but presumably there's a more formal definition among mineralogists. There's apparently also a stone called praseolite, which comes from the same root. I don't know if it's related. I was unable to find out. Okay, back to the episode. All right, whatever. It's a green rock. Praseed's prettier. Like, it's a prettier word. Yeah. I like how it directly, like, comes with, like, the leak connotation. I didn't expect that. Yeah, that's very strange. Anyway... Praecine develops around eventide when the sun withdraws its rays from the upper parts of the earth and when the dew is approaching. The sun gradually falls over the stone of the mountain and heats it up greatly. From the heat of the sun, the humidity of the air and the water, and the vigor of the dew, Praecine is born. That's how Praecine is created, because remember, stones and precious minerals are created, but they also simultaneously fell off of Lucifer as he was thrown from heaven. Right. So, one who has a burning fever should roll a praecine in a bit of rye bread dough and tie it with a cloth. For three days and nights, he should keep it tied over his umbilicus, that is to say, your belly button, and mm-hmm. the fever will go from you. I don't know why you need the rye bread for that. It's magic. You need all the ingredients. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But if someone is bruised on any part of his body from a blow or fall, take old fat, mix it with equal amounts of sage and tansy, and press a praecine onto it, then heat it in the sun or near the fire. Place all of this with the stone so heated over the place where it hurts and it will feel better. So tansy is a plant of the daisy family with yellow Mm. flat-topped flower heads and aromatic leaves used in cooking and medicine. So I'm guessing it's like a... You're making like a salve with sage and tansy and also have a warm stone. Yeah, I kind of wonder if it's just the warmth that helps. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like tansy might also have... Oh, I've seen these before. Those are pretty. Oh, it's used as an insect repellent when embalming. Good to know. High doses were used to induce abortions. Hmm. 
It was used to treat intestinal problems, rheumatism, digestive problems, fevers, sores, and to bring out the measles. I note that it doesn't, while it describes these medical applications, it does not say whether it worked. Yeah. Some tansy species contain oil, which can cause dermatitis. That's hives. You get hives. It is highly toxic to internal parasites, and it has long been prescribed to expel worms. It's also an effective insecticide. There you go. Fair enough. Yeah. There you go. You can also use it in omelets, apparently. It's very popular. So I guess it could actually help an upset stomach if you have, like, worms or other, like, parasitical infection. Good to know. All right. That's everything for that stone. Oh, it just has those two things? Just those two, I guess. I I flipped the page and it's like, next one. All right. All right. Shall we do... Let's do another one. Yeah, I think we have time for one more. Okay. Chalcedony, or Chalcedonius, develops when it is past eventide. So have you noticed that we're, we've gone through the course of the day as we've, I have noticed we've gone that, through yeah. these? Yeah. Does it mean, are we almost done with them, or do they keep going through um, the night? I don't know. Yeah, we got a, we got a whole bunch more. All right. Yeah. Well, tell me about Chalcedony. Yeah, I'm really excited because like, after a couple more, we get to Carbuncle. That's one of my favorites, Carbuncle. All right. Anyway, Chalcedony develops when it is past eventide, when the sun is almost gone and the air is a, a little bit still warm. It draws its heat more from the air than from the sun, and it has good powers. If a person carries this stone, and he always has it with him, touching his skin so that it's placed over a vein, the vein and its blood will receive its heat and strength and carry these into the other veins and the rest of the blood. The stone turns infirmities away from a human being and gives him a mind which is very strong against wrath. He will be so tranquil in his ways that almost no one will be able to find a way to provoke him to wrath, which is justified or harm him unjustly. One who wishes to have a consistent way of speaking and to bring forth wisely the things that they say should hold chalcedony in his hand. He should warm it with his breath so that it becomes moist. He should then lick it and he will be able to speak more firmly to people. Interesting. There's a lot of licking involved with with stones that I didn't expect. Will the guy with chalcedony like taped to his arm or whatever get angry with you if you make fun of the rock he is taped to his arm? I guess not. I guess he's just like, this is so I don't get angry. Look at how well it's working. <laughs> That's what I would do. I would just take the piss. Mm-hmm. But there you go. Chalcedony. I feel like we're sleeping on a lot of cool, precious stones or semi-precious stones that people use nowadays. Like, everybody likes, like, the rose quartz for romance and stuff. But, like, what about a, you know, a Chalcedony? I mean, we sell that at the bookstore. Yeah, it's in there? Oh, yeah. That's cool. I've seen it around. That's fun. Oh, it comes in different colors. We have a lot of rocks. Like, a ridiculous amount, actually. That's cool. See, my question about these is always, like, where do they get them? Are they polished? Or do you just carry around, like, this unhewn chunk of, like, stone? You're like, cool, I'm gonna just give this a lick. Don't mind me before this speech check. Yeah, you know, now that you bring it up, I've been imagining tumbled and polished rocks yeah, this whole time. So and have like, I. I have no idea to what extent that is accurate. It could just be rocks. Yeah. Also, I love the idea that, I don't know, either for flavor or like as a bonus to your role, you can lick the stone to help you in your speech check in a D&D game. Like just, yeah. just for flavor, be like, no, no, guys, I'm going to be historically accurate. And you just, you're like. I take a piece of chalcedony out of my bag and lick it. Now I'm going to convince the guy. Like, 
I just think that would be really fun. Yeah. Just to add. Yeah, that would be good. That would be fun to just throw in. As, yeah. As... Arbitrary plus one. I think it would improve it if this were not a world or system in which that actually works. <laughs> he just does it. He gains... Yeah, like he... He gets the a point of inspiration. it works. Yeah, But, like, yeah. it doesn't give him a bonus. Your character just really likes to do this. He's like, I'm convinced he knows. Yeah. I like it. I like it. 10 out of 10. Hey, and there you go. Next time somebody's asking, like, oh, well, why isn't your game historically accurate? If it were historically accurate, we'd all be sniffing and licking rocks. I'm sure some people want that. Fair enough. Anyway, with this new wisdom, go forth and game with all this wonderful newfound knowledge. Only lick rocks after you have cleaned them. Yeah, clean and identify them, please. Yes, clean, identify, uh, make sure you clean with non-toxic chemicals, yep, and yep. then you can lick it. And now, the you, now you can lick it, yeah. Anyway, go forth and produce magic, but no cheap sorcery, yes. please. We're a high-class establishment. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Oh, man. Thanks, past me. <laughs> I have, on, on an upcoming page, I have drawn a little star and written, good stopping point. Amazing. All right. I, we can probably get there before we get to the hour and a half mark. Too, okay. So. Awesome. Let's do like, it. Some of these pages are more highlighted than others, but uh, we'll see. It's doable. We'll make it doable. Yeah.